Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to your show. This is your host, Auntie Vice. It's good to be here today. I uh, have a great guest today, Summer Inaman. She is a body image coach, and she's the host of the really popular podcast, Eat the Rules. I love her work. I love what she does. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Me too. So this is coming out as we go into the holiday season, which has got to be one of the worst for body images, right? And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on at this time. So let's start. What's the difference between body image coaching and just telling people to love their bodies? Yeah. So, okay, let me think about this. Well, I think, first of all, you know, telling people to love their bodies is for one, like coaching is the opposite of telling somebody what to do. So I would never tell somebody how to think or feel. And secondly, you know, this, the whole message around like, love your body is very much centered around, um, you know, loving the way that you, that you look, which I think still continues to, you know, center our appearance as one of the more important things about us, which is really what we're trying to get away from with body image coaching, at least in the way that I approach it. And, and so when we tell someone to, you know, to love their body, they often think of it as just like, it's, it's almost like this, another expectation on top of all the other expectations that they have on themselves. So I will often hear from clients that are like, oh, you know, like, I know I should just feel better about myself. I know I should just love my body, but, um, you know, I feel so much shame about it. And so they're almost like doubling down on the shame. They're almost feeling bad for feeling bad because mainstream body, body positivity is kind of like, you know, centered this message of like, we all just need to love our bodies. And so it's, you know, another unrealistic expectation and it, and it gets away from really the work that, I truly do with people, which is really more around unhooking their sense of self-worth from how they look. And obviously like then, you know, education around collective liberation and why we feel this way in the first place and really intersecting the social justice piece into it. But body image coaching is really more about, okay, let's try to unpack, you know, what, what, what does your body actually mean to you? You know, like what do the beliefs you have about your body say about you so that we can get to more of these core beliefs and change those and strengthen your sense of self-worth so that you're not reliant on how you look to tell you how you should be feeling about yourself on a particular day. And what's great about that is as time goes on, then if you look in the mirror and maybe you don't like what you see, it's not such a big deal. It's kind of like just seeing 
like a brown station wagon and thinking like, I don't really like that car, but it's not like, you know, making or breaking you on that particular day. So we want to get people more to a place where they feel, you know, emotionally neutral towards their body uh, and their appearance and know that they're, you know, inherently just good enough as they are. A lot of the stuff you put out on your your website and in your blog includes how you went through the uncoupling of of shame and the the tie of your value to the way you look. When did that journey start for you? The unhooking or the tying? <laughs> the the un the uncoupling of the way you look to your body. Like you've been on this journey yourself. Yes. So but like the rest of us, you were raised in society. Mm-hmm. So we were all fed the line, you know, thinner is better. No, nothing tastes as good as thin feels, which was the mantra in my household growing up. Mm-hmm. When did you start to work on that for yourself? Because you've been doing this work for a long time. Yeah. So I, it was probably, um, you know, I, Let me just take a step back and just say that I, you know, I don't remember a time where I felt comfortable in my body growing up. So I was bullied relentlessly for my body. And, um, you know, my mom was a chronic dieter, constantly yo-yo dieting. I grew up in the 80s, like that was extremely toxic. And so I I just really like, I, I literally just only have memories of feeling uncomfortable in my body, thinking there was like almost something wrong with with me. And so I was a chronic dieter and obsessively exercised for, you know, at least a decade that it was pretty disordered. And prior to that, it was more just like dabbling here and there. Uh, And it wasn't until I, it was, I'm trying to remember the age specifically, but I think it was like 31 or 32 or something like that now. And, you know, I just couldn't lose weight anymore. Like, and I remember thinking there was something wrong with me. Like, I was like, why can't I lose weight? Like, I, I, I just kept gaining weight. And I was like, why can't I lose weight? I was, there must be something I'm missing. And I went and saw all these different doctors. And like, all of them just said to me, like, you are, you just need to eat less and move more. Like, they literally, they literally said this to me. And I, I just would like to note that at the same time, I didn't have a period. So I had gone six months without a period. And that was also what I was mentioning to these doctors. And I had a doctor say to me, like, you're too big to have hypothalamic amenorrhea. And I'm like, I'm straight sized. So I, yeah, I, for people who are not seeing this, so I, I have a lot of straight size privilege. And that, but that, that was the message that I received there. So it was just overlooked that I had this problem with food. And it wasn't until I found one doctor who finally was like, she was a naturopathic doctor, which some people have problems with, but this particular one actually asked me about what I was eating and how I was exercising. And she looked at, she looked at it and she was like, Oh my God, like summer, like you are, she's like, you're not eating enough and you're exercising way too much. And your hormones are that of a postmenopausal woman. Like the, the problem is not, you know, that you are not getting the right diet. It's like, you're not eating enough. And so that was like, that was kind of like the wake up call moment for me, when somebody actually put it right in front of me that I had a problem, because everything I thought I was doing, I thought I, I thought everything was healthy. And so that was the catalyst to then really looking at myself and, and, and starting to do some exploration around healing my relationship with food. And that led me to understand that so much of that relationship with food was to do with how I felt in my body. And how I felt in my body 
was really how I felt about my body was how I felt about myself as a whole. And so it was through that those sort of events that that led me to realize that this was really more of an issue of my sense of self-worth and the fact that the way that I felt about myself was completely tied to my perception of my appearance and my body size and what other people thought of me. Uh, and that that was really where the work needed to happen in order to heal. Like it wasn't just about, you know, eating more food. It was, it was really this deeper work that needed to happen so that I didn't have that desire to, you know, to change my body anymore. And, and so that I could be comfortable, like, regardless of how I look. And again, like, I just, I always reiterate that, you know, I'm straight sized. I hold a lot of body privilege. I'm white. I'm, you know, middle class, cisgendered. Like my healing journey, probably a lot easier um, than a lot of people's as a result of those things. So I just always want to caveat that when I talk about my story. And I, I do appreciate that because there does come privilege with that. But you bring up that even being straight size, white, cis, like all the things that doctors strive for, they're still, we're telling you just eat less and move more. And I heard that my entire life as well. Uh, with most of the time without doctors having any clue what I was eating or what I was doing for exercise, they never asked. Yes, yes, yes. There was no interrogation of it. It was just an assumption that because I wasn't like emaciated that, you know, there was room to improve. <laughs> I'm putting that in quotation marks. <laughs> right. So there's a bunch of stuff I want to unpack there. So first is the idea is if you are not this rail thin collarbone sticking out by two inches, then you must not have an eating disorder. So mm-hmm. disordered eating is very common, especially amongst the guests on my show, uh, and not having it recognized. So when you talk about disordered eating, because I'm sure there's quite a few clients you see who come in and they don't think they have any type of disordered eating. What can that look like? I mean, what is, you know, especially if you're bigger bodied or whatever, and somebody's going, well, then obviously you're fine. You don't have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it looks up, it it can look like just, you know, whether it's like just avoiding certain food groups, um, feeling guilty, feeling shame when you do eat something. Uh, It can come from, you know, whether it's you're just like actually physically restricting foods, so not allowing yourself to eat particular foods, but it can also be more mental restriction. So just kind of saying to yourself like, well, this is the last time I'm eating this food or I can only have one of these or um, I shouldn't eat that. So all of those, you know, it's really the diet mentality. But I think if we were to kind of boil it down to like one overarching question, the question would be like, does your weight dictate your decisions about food? And if so, there's definitely you know, like an indication there that you may have a disordered relationship with food. And disordered relationships with food are going to operate on a spectrum, like eating disorders do too. So, you know, having a disordered relationship with food can look like what I had, where it was, you know, pretty extreme restriction, but never really an eat, never like a full-blown eating disorder because I could never maintain it for more than four days. But other people, it might just look like, oh, I just, you know, I just watch what I eat and, and, you know, they're really kind of controlled about it and it doesn't seem to like necessarily phase them, but it's all tied to this fear of, of gaining weight or this need to like kind of control their body size. And so I think that that is really what I'm looking for is like, does do, you know, 
the decisions that you make around food and movement, are they being dictated by weight, whether that's fear of weight gain or desire to lose weight? And if so, then, you know, there's, there's improvements that can be made so that you can have a much better relationship with food in your body. We're coming into a season two where food is used as a community, food is used as a reward. And then most of us in our social media feeds will see the, if you're eating Thanksgiving dinner, you've got to run this many miles to burn off this much turkey. And this is how you earn your your pecan pie slice or whatever, right? This is very common every year. For people who are working through that process of, of decoupling good food and bad food and how they feel about themselves with just eating, that can be, it can be an incredibly hard season. Going into it, what would be your advice for our listeners who are, who are really struggling with this and want to do, do that work, but it's also hard when your, your relatives are going, wow, that's the second piece of pie you've had today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think like two things. One is like the more that you can really kind of give yourself permission to eat the foods you want to eat going into it, like the, even if it's just two weeks before and just, you know, give yourself permission. Cause if we're restricting going into it, then it's going to be like this big thrill where we feel like we have to eat it all. And we're never going to get it again. But the feedback that I always hear from people is once they've kind of healed their relationship with food, like holidays are just no big deal. Cause you're like, well, I can have pumpkin pie on a Tuesday if I want. It's not like this one Sunday is the only time that I can ever have it. And it's just not such a big deal. Um, we're less likely to kind of eat to that point of like really uncomfortable fullness because we're, you know, we're well fed going into it. So the, the better, the more well fed that you can be. And again, that's a privilege. Um, going into it, the better that it will be. But as it relates to interactions and conversations, I think like having some clear boundaries going into it is also really important. Um, and boundaries are really about like, what are you going to tolerate? What are you going to do? If, if someone makes a mention of, you know, your body or food, what do you, what can you do to protect yourself? And that can look like that again, this can show up on a spectrum depending on your level of comfort with these people and your level of like comfort, your emotional bandwidth too. Cause sometimes we just don't have the bandwidth to set boundaries with people. And sometimes the best thing that we can do is just change the, change the conversation. So if someone says like, are you going to eat all that? You just, you just kind of be like, Oh, Hey, did you see the, I don't know, latest season of the ultimatum or whatever? watching these days i don't know you know what i mean like just change the subject or or even like just like get up pretend you have a phone call be like oh excuse me just one sec i have to take this call um but then on the other end of the spectrum boundaries can look more like you know hey uh, i would appreciate it if you didn't comment on food or my body or telling people even in advance like hey listen like i'm really working hard on my mental well-being my own relationship with food and my body i would really appreciate it if we didn't talk about bodies or food when we're together, if we can just kind of enjoy the celebration and enjoy each other, talk about our lives. Does that sound like something that you could, that we could do together? Uh, and so again, it's going to depend on your relationship and like what you feel comfortable doing, but thinking these through and thinking these things through in advance can be helpful. Even just having kind of like us, like a, 
safety plan or like a self-care plan, both of those things, you know, like what's your safety plan? If you start to feel really attacked, if you start to feel shame, like what can you do? Can you leave? Is there a room you can go to? Is there somebody you can call? Is there somebody there that can be your ally? And then even from a self-care plan, it's like, what can you do afterwards to really care for yourself, to be there for yourself? Like, and again, it could be like, who can you talk to? Or even like, what podcast do you feel like what might be helpful for you to listen to? Uh, or what actions might be helpful. So maybe it's like just laying down, watching a funny TV show, having a warm bath, like any of these things that can we can do to help ourselves emotionally when we're in these really uncomfortable situations. So much of the comments from other folks, especially when you're online, but also in person is, I'm only bringing up your weight because I'm concerned about your health. Mm-hmm. We know from from nearly 100 years of research, they're not connected necessarily when you're going through this process of of healing your relationship with your body and with food and with size how do you begin to unlearn those health messages because everything is the thinner you are the longer you live the happier you'll be the healthier you are and it's near impossible to get away from that so how at least from your own journey how did you start to decouple that yeah so i think you know if we think about beliefs like i i sometimes will use this analogy of like a like a an image of like a table and beliefs are like the tabletop they need legs to stand on so they need like actual evidence and so that the what we've been given is all the evidence then all the information that supports this belief that you know weight and and um health are are completely connected one causes the other um and so if we want to develop a new belief system like if we want to develop a belief system where we can look and say like you know what that's not actually the case health is a lot more complicated than that then we need evidence of that and that's an unlearning process and and so when i'm working with anyone around this i think the more education that we can do the better and that's that's all it was you know for me too so reading books listening to podcasts actually looking at the studies like following Reagan Chastain's Substack religiously. And it wasn't a Substack back then when I was doing it. It was just like an email list. But that kind of thing will help, right? Because the more evidence that we have, then the the legs are going to crumble on that old belief system and they're going to build up on this new one. And so for people to unlearn that stuff, I think the education piece is really important. But on top of that too, we also have to just be clear about like, what does health mean to us? You know, like what, what is your own definition of health? Because if you, everyone's going to have a different definition. I've seen many people kind of speak to this. Many, um, fat liberation experts speak to this. Like they'll say, like, I've, I asked a room full of people what their definition of health is and everybody had a different definition. And so I think we have to get clear on what it means for us as individuals too. Like what, what would it mean for you to be healthy? What would that look like? What would you have more of? And these are coaching questions I ask clients. Because then we can start to see that a lot of the time what we associate with health, it doesn't actually have to do with body size anyways. So it might be like, well, more energy or, you know, it might mean that I can have like a stronger, uh, like my body is stronger or my, my joints are less sore, things like that. And and then we can talk about like some of the little changes that might facilitate that that don't involve, you know, intentional weight loss or food restriction. Um, knowing as well that a huge influence on our health is the social determinants of health, which we often don't have control over. Uh, so things like, um, 
you know, like your, uh, whether you experience uh, racism or whether you experience poverty, whether you have like a safe environment to live in, like all of these things have a huge influence on, on health outcomes, more so than just food or moving your body, um, as well, genetics play a massive role. And so instead of thinking like that, you know, something's wrong with you also recognize that like some of this stuff is genetic and it doesn't really matter what we do. We might still end up with, with those conditions. And so that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I guess if I compartmentalize it, it's like do the unlearning and new learning of, you know, weight and health and, and redefine what health means to you and, and like, or just define what health means to you as a person. So one shout out to Rachel Chastain. Her episode will be on two weeks after this. Okay. I, I do. I love Reagan's newsletter. I, I consume it endlessly. Uh, she's, she's great. Uh, but second, you and I are about in the same age bracket, grew up in the eighties. And so as you've gotten older, how has your definition of health changed? Yeah, I, you know, I just like, I just want to be able to do stuff tomorrow. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just trying to hold it together. I think, you know, I used to, I used to really approach things of like, always trying to kind of like do better, be stronger, be more. And now I'm like, I don't need to push myself a hundred percent. Like, I just want to be able to do what, keep being able to do what I already can do. <laughs> and. And so, you know, my dad and my, and another huge piece that I don't think was there before, was just like the, the mental health piece. It's just, it's just like fundamental to my overall well-being and to not take things for granted, to like be really grateful for what I do have and try to kind of stay more in the present instead of catastrophizing the future. So I don't know. What's your definition of health now? You know, I, I live with massive chronic illness issues and so for yeah. me it's just keeping the system enough in balance so i can get out of bed in the morning without too much pain um and that things function as, as well as they can like i've had to yeah. get really okay with like i have really horrible arthritis in my hands so being able to garden with you know my witch hands makes me really happy yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had chronic pain for a while. Um, I had a hysterectomy to resolve the issue, but I, uh, it, it's just so debilitating. And so when you, you just have to enjoy the days where you feel, you know, more able and things like that. That's how I feel. I don't take it for granted at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I never really took it for granted, mostly because I put myself through undergrad by doing in-home healthcare. So I worked with severely disabled folk and I always knew that I could end up that way, right? Like this was always yeah. a possibility. I, it surprised me how much aging just screws you up. Like mm. even before mm -hmm. I got sick, like my recovery time at 40 was very different than my recovery time at 25 from any activity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a child at 39. So I like, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, I'm very tired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a young person's game. <laughs> yeah. I think with aging too, like, I don't, like, I'm not one of those people that's like, I'm trying to live to a hundred. And like, I just, I, I, cause I just, I feel like that would be kind of lonely. Like I, I have a, <laughs> you know, I have a relative that's almost there and it's, 
pretty depressing. And so I, I just, there's such a focus on like living as long as you can. And I, I'm just like, I just, I just want to, you know, live as best I can. And however long that is, it'll, it'll be. And, and I hope it's a lot longer than where I'm at right now, but I'm not like hyper focused on like a certain number or like trying to, you know, live as long as possible. Like a lot of people do that. I mean, good for them if they want to do that, but I, I just don't want to be lonely. <laughs> I, I continually refer back. So Lewis Black was talking to his mother when she turned 102. And he says, you know, so what have you learned in all these years? And she's like, nobody needs to live this long. Yeah, like, honestly. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very true. Uh, so you talk about getting comfortable with your body. And most people think of that in terms of size and, and whether or not you're carrying, if you're bigger bodied or not. But as you age, other things change that you can't alter with that. So when you're looking in the mirror and you start to see those lines show up or, you know, mm-hmm. things shift. Like at 20, my tits were like a, a young Midwesterner. They're like wide open, looking at everybody in the eyes and want to know where the party is. And at 50, they're like an old New Yorker. Their eyes are on the ground and they don't want to be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> when you're looking in the mirror. How do you deal with the aging aspect of it? Yeah, I've been really wrestling with this. And I would say majority of my clients tend to be over 42. So I'm, uh, I'm very much like, you know, interested in, in, um, how aging intersects with body image. And, and so for me, what I noticed is that when I, when I used to be concerned about like my body size, so when I was like super critical of my body size and constantly felt like I needed to be thinner, um, that was always really, I, I, that was always more of like a coping mechanism. So what I mean is that I was a lot more critical of my body and I wanted to turn to dieting in moments where I was experiencing like a lot of other things. So like whether that would be just like life felt really chaotic or little, really stressful, or my job was really stressful. And therefore I would kind of use it as this distraction, right? Like it was like dieting is a distraction, like body shame. It was kind of like this distraction from like these other more heavier feelings that I was experiencing underneath. What I've noticed is that that is hot, but that happens now more with aging stuff. Although I'm able to catch it because I noticed that I was doing this, but I would start to like, you know, like notice like the wrinkles and think like, well, should I get like something, you know? And, um, and I was like, what the hell am I doing? And then I, I realized that it was happening when life was feeling, you know, really stressful and chaotic for me. So different things were happening. There was like different acute stressors going on. And that's when I would kind of hyper fixate on like my face and like, you know, what my wrinkles were doing and whether I should like try to do something about that. And so, that's that's definitely how it one way that it's played out for me and um and i think just like really i've had to very much so look at like what would it mean if i had like something like what would it mean if i got botox like what what would i really be going after and i think that like when i was able to really unravel that I think it's really intersected with classism and this idea of like signaling sort of, you know, like privilege and, and wealth. And, and so it's been easier for me to then be like, you know what? That doesn't align 
with my values. And I also think that that stuff, like, and I don't judge anyone that does any injections or things like that. I definitely have friends that do it. But I think that like, it's kind of like dieting, whereas like you're signing up to do that forever. Like, because when you stop, it stops. Like when you stop putting Botox in your face, then it comes like your face moves again, I think at least. And so, um, and so like, it's just been interesting for me to like use the same kind of self-awareness that I was able to develop around, you know, weight and stuff around aging and be able to really look at it and make decisions that are more aligned with my values, even though it's uncomfortable. And sometimes you feel like kind of the odd person out when a lot of other people, you know, are engaging in like all these different things. Exactly. And there's a couple of things I want to uh, want to really touch on there. You bring up how this is connected to classism. And mm-hmm. some of what you do on your podcast and, and in your coaching and with your, your, your co-coach, Danny, is look at things like racism and classism. Uh, how have you gone about learning what those are, what those implications are for yourself and your body, and then the process of working through that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just an ongoing process. It's not one thing. I've done lots of different courses. I've done lots of different workshops. I've read lots of books. I've listened to lots of different, you know, videos and, and people in those spaces. And so I think so much of it is just like understanding that these biases that we hold, we don't just get rid of them in one fell swoop or one workshop or anything like that. Like it is just an ongoing process. The more that I learn, the more I'm able to see where I've internalized these things. Um, whether that's internalizing the oppression or internalizing the dominance, you know, and, um, and understanding like how that impacts like beliefs I have and attitudes I have. And I know there's more that I have that I haven't unpacked. And Danny and I talk about this together is just like, we really were all, well, she says like, we're always students. Um, and that's something that um, we both really believe in quite heavily is that it's not just like a one and done thing. It's this ongoing process of unlearning and, you know, reading people's stories. And, and like, for example, this week, I just started reading Elliot Page's book, Page Boy. And I'm like, having all these like, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is what it's like to be trend- to be a transgender man. And it's just, it's like, you know, again, like un- more unlearning, more like kind of seeing things from perspectives that I wouldn't have because I don't have that lived experience. And so I think the more that we can listen to others, the more that we can read their stories, the more that we can uh, pay people for their work, um, compensate them, whether that's like their Patreon accounts or their workshops. And I don't have it perfect at all. Like, I don't want to sound like I know what I'm doing because I probably don't, but that's really the process. And then through that, I'm able to be more critical of myself and make changes and, and then apply that to how I work with, how I work with clients and teaching clients the same types of things. How do clients respond, especially white women, cis white women, when you bring up things like classism, racism, and their position in that hierarchy, because we benefit from so much of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know tons of white women who've, who've not dealt with it, and they think it's just, just the body and we don't have to deal with the rest. So how do your clients respond when you bring up those connections? 
You know, it's funny. So like 95% of my clients listen to my podcast. So I think they know. And uh, if if they don't, they, they, you know, once they find out, they either stop listening or they leave me a bad review telling me that I'm like a, um, uh, <laughs> somebody left me a really funny review. What did they call me? I can't remember. Virtue signaler or something like that. Anyways. Um, so, so I feel like I almost have this buffer to weed people out. So the majority of my clients do hold similar values, which I think is really important, right? Like when we're, when we're trying, like businesses should be clear on their values and that should come across in, you know, the work that you're putting out to the world. And so that people aren't surprised by that. And I think that prior to maybe 2016 ish, like I don't think I was as clear about that. Um, and I remember running my group program at the time when Donald Trump was elected president. And it was very awkward because there were a couple people in my group that had voted for him. And I remember thinking that time, like, this is why it's so important to be vocal about the p- politics of like body politics and social justice, because like as a, you know, just in general, obviously, but also as like, when you think about like getting client, attracting clients that align to your values, because now my group program, like, it's like people can vent about that stuff. Like a lot of my, most of my clients are in the US. They can come on, they can vent about like the, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And they know that it's a safe space. They're not going to have like someone put up their hand and be like, wait a minute, abortion is terrible. You know what I mean? So, so I think that like, it's, I don't have to do a lot of like the initial kind of education for for white women i think that most of them are coming in with a little bit of those values already um or they've listened to some of the podcast episodes so they're in that like unlearning learning phase which is good it makes it definitely makes my job easier and and it repels the people that i probably don't want work work to work with anyways it's one of the benefits of being very open about what you believe is, yeah, you can, you can kind of deflect some of that, which is great. Yeah. You, you have been in this space for, for quite some time, right? This is, you're not new to the body liberation, body image movement. And in the last several years, we've seen a lot of co-opting of this by businesses and, and all of that. What have what's really stood out to you in the change in in the discussion around body and body politic in the last decade or so? I think that like I try not to follow super mainstream stuff just because it kind of irritates me. But I suppose if I were to kind of analyze it, I think that you know the language has been just completely co-opted. The people with the biggest platforms are the ones who still hold the most privilege for the most part. Um, they're, 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 they're not political, you know, they kind of, they don't really get to the political side of things. I think at least again, I don't follow them because I just, it's just like, I just don't, not, not super interested. It doesn't really serve me. And so I think that like, that's a real problem because again, we're just keeping the focus on, like just love your body and um you know and like it's it's just all about we just need to love our cellulite instead of actually talking about the real you know social inequities that need to be talked about in order for people to have 
you know, body liberation. And the other thing too, is that weight loss has co-opted a lot of the language too. So I got an email a week or two ago from somebody who wanted me to participate in some promotion of something. And they were like, yeah, our campaign's called, you know, body love. And we're all about helping women to um, use uh, medication to lose weight. (laughs) I'm just, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but I do have to laugh because otherwise I can't cope with the world. And so it's just like, I, I mean, I just wrote back and I was like, you need to do some education around the messaging that you're co-opting and, and, you know, like just, I kind of wrote them this like few sentences about it, but that's what's happening, right? Is that they're using that same language and they're, but they're upholding the same oppressive standards and nothing's changing as a result. And it's just the same status quo, which is really unfortunate that's a lot of what I've noticed too, is we're just going to take the language and and run with it without ever unpacking anything that we're contributing to. Yeah. And it's, it's capitalism too. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I was going to say, I get those emails too. And it's like, you clearly have never listened to the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And I mean, I like it's the problem is that people build up big brands and they make money off of those brands and so in order for them to survive financially, it, it's not a smart decision for them to be, get political or to talk about the real issues. Um, but that's like, to me, that's just like, that sucks. You know, like I know if I put on my website that like you can, you know, accept your body and you'll lose weight, like I would probably be making way more money than I'm making, but I, you know, like I have, I'm, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm on a high horse or anything, but like, I, you know, I, I want to be aligned to my values and what I truly believe in. And sometimes that means that I'm probably not going to make as much as money as somebody who's endorsing weight loss or co-opting the movement and keeping it really like fluffy and, and, uh, apolitical. So yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of folks do that. We had Chrissy King on the show earlier this year. And she was very much into the the fitness coaching and everything. And that change really changed her income, uh, right? It, it, it does. Yeah. 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 It's fortunate. So one of the things you do is you do work with professional groups mm-hmm. around um, unlearning some of this. What has been the reception, especially in the, the medical and medical adjacent communities to wanting to actually deal with some of these oppressive standards and and this connection of health and weight? Yeah. So, um, you know, I I would say that depends on your definition of medical professional, like in terms of the professionals that I've helped, the majority of them are more like mental health professionals. So people like therapists, although we do get quite a few like dietitians. So yeah, dietitians, therapists, like we're not really getting doctors, I know you're interviewing Danny. She actually does more work directly with doctors. We have had like some like nurses and things like that. And so they, I mean, they want it because they want like they've, they obviously signed up for it because they know what it's about and they think it's, they, they see the importance of it and they see how it's a, it, there's a huge gap. Right. I mean, I think the stat is like 80% of women. And I know that's a very like um, gendered uh, binary way of looking at it, but 80% of women in the U S are dissatisfied with their appearance and dissatisfied with their body. And so 
it's obviously impacting the vast majority of people and it's so normalized, right? Like if we just normalize it, that it's just like, well, yeah, it's normal to hate your body. Like everybody does when it's like, no, it doesn't need to be that way. And, um, in doing so, you know, we're, we're maintaining these, uh, systems of oppression, like anti-fatness, like anti-blackness, um, that ca- are causing real harm to people. And so I think that, there's definitely like some feedback from people who probably don't get what we're doing and don't see the importance of it. But the people that we have the utmost pleasure of working with um, really see the value in it and see how much it benefits their clients when they can work with them around the body, body image side of things. So for our listeners who are not familiar with your podcast, uh, you want to talk about that for a minute? And because I would definitely recommend my listeners go check you out. So do you want to talk about it? Sure. So my podcast is called Eat the Rules. Uh, I've been doing it for nine years. There's 280 episodes and probably more than that at the time of this airing. And it's really focused around uh, body image, uh, healing your relationship with food, but everything through a social justice lens. Uh, I do a lot of solo episodes that I call like body image series where I, where I talk about issues related to body image. So for example, like what to do if you kind of feel like you like intellectually get the idea of body acceptance, but don't really believe it or what to do if you find yourself comparing yourself to others. And then I interview other people in the, in this space, um, and their experiences. And I've had like so many amazing people on the show. We had Aubrey Gordon on the show. We had um, Chrissy King, like you mentioned, Jessica Wilson. Oh my gosh, so many. I'm having Leah Vernon on next week. So she's phenomenal. I saw that you had her on too. So I was like, okay. Oh my God. I love Leah. We probably have some, a lot of the uh, same guests, (laughs) Um, but it's good. Right. And, uh, and so, so yeah, so I, 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 it's to me, it's like the thing that I do in conjunction with the actual coaching that I do. Uh, it's the best way to kind of check check me out and get a feel for what I'm all about. So we're coming up on the holidays. What are you looking forward to this year? I am looking forward to um, giving my five-year-old a really fun Christmas because I think that you know, he's at an age where he's probably going to wake up at like two in the morning. And, you know, the the whole like magic of it is, is like, it's just, this is like peak magic time for a kid. (laughs) So I, I am most excited about, um, about that as well as, um, hopefully seeing some of our family and having a bit of downtime. So, you know, nothing too wild, but just, you know, middle-aged life here. <laughs> I have a, a nephew and yeah, five is about the perfect Christmas. Yeah. Because they're old enough to really engage in it and just the fantasy of it. Oh, it's so darling. You, It's wonderful. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we had a bit of a snafu last Christmas. So this, <laughs> this Christmas, people woke up on Christmas morning with COVID. So this Christmas, we're hoping for like a better redo. <laughs> I won't even go into the whole story, but it was a whole, like, basically, oh. people were isolated at Christmas dinner. Anyway, um, so we're hoping for a better redo this year. <laughs> Healthy. Oh, no. Yes. Healthy. Yes. Uh, yes. No, it's five is, God, they're darling at that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Super cute. 
if our listeners want to find you, if they want to hire you for coaching, if they want to listen to the show, plug all the things. Sure. So you can find me at thebodyimagecoach.com. That'll take you to my website where you can find uh, the work I do with people. So I have a group program uh, called You on Fire, where I work with people who are really struggling with their own body image. Um, and it's uh, an amazing program where you get personalized coaching for me in a group setting and uh, really helps you kind of unpack your body shame and get to a place where you feel much more neutral in your body. And then I work with professionals. We have our body image coach certification program where we work with uh, professionals or providers who are looking to uh, expand their repertoire and their skills to be able to really help people with with body image, I do that with Danny, as you, uh, uh, you know, if, if that wasn't super clear with people. And, um, and we do, it's a very like a social justice integrated, social justice is really integrated into that. And then my podcast is Eat the Rules and I'm on social media as, uh, at summer in and in. Thank you so much. And listeners will have all of those links and more in our show notes. Thank you so much for being here, Summer. It was great to get to chat with you. Yee, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, like, subscribe, you know, do all the things. Thank you so much. And now, a moment of gratitude. You know, I'm grateful to be pain-free. I'm really, like, just super grateful for that. I... It's been a year since I had my surgery and I, I had something called adenomyosis, which is like endometriosis, but inside your uterus. And I was just in like chronic pain for a third of the time, like debilitating pain. Um, and so it's just nice to just be like, yeah, okay. I'm not in pain. It's like, I know we talked about, I just, I don't take it for granted. So <laughs> I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for my son. I'm grateful for, yeah, I'm, I, I'm in a good spot. So I, I'm, I feel very lucky in this moment in time. Hopefully me saying that it doesn't make everything go to shit, but. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.